Good morning. It's good to be here this morning, to be able to worship together as the body of Christ, to gather together as the saints. This morning, I feel um, blessed. Blessed to be here, blessed to worship together. When I think about this congregation and how long it's been, it's been a little bit over a year, and we have seen our church grow and start to grow, but we've also seen our church grow in our desire and our hunger for the word, and that has been such a blessing. And just a few weeks ago, we were blessed to have our first baby dedication, and that was a beautiful thing to see Noah come up here with Bradley and Jane. Such a blessing. And when I sat there and I watched it, I thought to myself, that, that's an answered prayer. That's an answered prayer. And that's something that we should hold on to, because so often we just move on to the next thing that we want and the next thing that we need, and it's just on and on and on, and we forget about how God has already provided. That is an answered prayer right before us every day. On top of that, it reminded me of the time when I brought my kids up to the stage with Betsy, and we dedicated them. And I remember thinking to myself that it's not necessarily that we're dedicating the baby, we're dedicating ourselves to raising them in the truth. We're dedicating ourselves to raising them in the word and to guard them from all falsehood. That's what we were dedicating ourselves to. But it also reminded me of when I was a kid and when I was a child. Now, my family and I, we grew up in Northeast Philadelphia, and I went to the Joseph J. Greenberg Elementary and Middle School, like some of us here. And I remember when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I was being invited to many, many bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. Because in that area in Northeast Philly, there was a large Jewish population. A lot of Jewish people lived there. And I remember that a lot of my friends came from Orthodox Jewish backgrounds. On Saturdays, they wouldn't even turn the lights on in their house. They wouldn't drive cars. You'd see them walk on Saturday to synagogue. That was a common thing. During Passover, they would cook on separate pots and pans, and they would eat on separate plates. And then during Passover, when they would come to school, they would bring matzah for lunch to eat. And I remember thinking to myself when I saw that, boy, that is really extreme. That's really extreme. Now, at the very same time, I had Christian friends who came from very devout Christian homes. And in those homes, they were not allowed to go to the movies, ever. They were not allowed to go to the movies. They were not allowed to wear jewelry of any kind right? And they were not allowed to even take a sip of alcohol, never. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, that's extreme. And then when I was about 13, 14 years old, I remember opening my Bible and starting to read, and in my simple childish mind, I looked at the Bible and I thought, I figured it out. They're all just a bunch of Pharisees. That's what they are. They're Pharisees. They're rule-following, legalistic, puritanical, 
joy-hating Pharisees. That's what they all are. I figured it out. But now, in 2023, we have witnessed a pendulum shift. Now, if you know anything about a pendulum, it's just a weight attached to a fixed point. It swings left and right and left and right. It's carried by momentum and gravity. When it goes to one extreme, over time, it goes to another extreme. So now, in 2023, where we once saw legalism, now in churches and with Christians, what we see is the opposite. We see what you would call antinomianism, which is just against the law. Now, in churches and Christians that we see and that are renowned, the ones that we recognize, we see Christians who really have no code of conduct on standards or ethics at all. We see Christians who don't think or have an opinion of how they dress, how they speak, how they act, how they raise their children. They have no opinion or standard at all. The pendulum seems to have shifted. And with that pendulum shift, inevitably what you have is an overflow into their theology and the way that they think about core theological concepts. There is a ministry that releases a publication every two years, and it's just a bunch of survey results. They take a survey among Christians all over the country, different demographics, different denominations. They, they capture it all. And they released their survey results last year. And when you look at some of the answers to the questions, it's kind of alarming. So I'll just give you a couple of them. The first question, does God make mistakes? Now, this survey was among Christians. Does God make mistakes? 25% said yes. God does make mistakes. Another question. Does God accept worship from all religions, every religion? Does he accept all worship? 25 to 50% said yes. Yes, he does. And then finally, does God adapt and change? Does he change over time with different cultures and 50% said yes. Now that's pretty alarming. We here in this church, when we hear sound biblical teaching week after week after week after week, when we hear results, survey results like that, it's, it, it is alarming. Now here's my question to you for this morning. Were the Pharisees actually onto something? Were they actually onto something? Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We just thank you for all of your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, as we continue to work through our series, Father, I pray that you open our eyes, illuminate our eyes to the truth of your scripture. May we recognize truth for what it is, and may we not just recognize it, God, but may we apply it into our lives. May the word become alive to us. We know that your word is truth. May we accept it. May we submit to it. Lord, we thank you for all of your mercy and all of your grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over the past few months now, we've been in a sermon series called King and Kingdom. It's been a long time. And we have been working systematically through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, Pastor Billy broke us into Matthew chapter 12, and he spoke at length about the Sabbath. And I listened to the podcast last week, and I loved what Pastor Billy had to say about how 
Americans typically break down their time throughout the week, how they spend their time. It was kind of eye-opening. But when we think about the Sabbath, we have to keep it at the forefront of our mind, that concept, that idea, when we're working through our passage for today. When you comb through the Old Testament, you see the first demonstration of the Sabbath in Genesis, when God rests on the seventh day of creation. The next time that you see the Sabbath mentioned is Exodus 16, when God sends manna from heaven for the Israelites. He then speaks to the Israelites through Moses and tells them to collect as much as they can because on the seventh day, they have to rest and observe the Sabbath. The next time we see it mentioned is Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. So let's turn there quickly and let's read. Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the Sabbath as God had ordained it. Now, when you look at this commandment, it's actually two commandments in one. Remember the Sabbath. Now, you might ask how. How is that two commandments in one? Well, here's the question. You can't take a Sabbath unless you do what? Work. Work is a good thing. We are called to work. Don't be fooled by anyone who would tell you that you should work as little as possible. We should work, and we should honor God in our work. And when we work in the world, that is one of the greatest ways that you can honor God and display who he is. Work is a good thing. And it is only in that context that a Sabbath actually makes sense. The next thing that you recognize, one, that it's two commandments in one, and second, to honor the Lord through a Sabbath requires you to put quite a bit of trust in God. Now imagine for yourself that you are an Israelite at that time. And you've been given this commandment to rest. The Israelites at that time lived meal to meal. They worked the ground. For them to not work for an entire day is to put a lot of trust in God that he would provide. But what about you and me? What does the Sabbath mean to you and I? We have days off. Our job gives us days off, two a week, sometimes more. What is the Sabbath for us? 
we get that paycheck every two weeks. For me, when I was a kid, Sabbath for me was very simple. A Big Mac sitting in front of a TV, watching the NBA on NBC, doubleheader, and then taking a nap. That was the Sabbath for me. Is that what the Sabbath is? Is that what God intended? To sit on your couch all alone and to stare at your phone under a blanket all day? Is that, is that what the Sabbath is? The Sabbath was intended to give grace. The Sabbath was intended to do good. The Sabbath was intended to spend time with your family and your loved ones and to honor God. Betsy and I have talked several times about the Sabbath and how we could honor God with the Sabbath and how what we would do is take our phones and toss them. Not watch TV, not do all that. Sit together as a family, make a meal together as a family. Sit and talk and laugh and joke, sing songs to God, read his word and honor him. That more resembles what the Sabbath should be. But from Exodus 20 all the way to Matthew 12 in our passage of focus today, the Sabbath was perverted to the point that it no longer looked anything like what God had intended. So let's read our passage for today. And we'll start in verse 8. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Here we have a passage that starts in verse 8, where Jesus makes a bold proclamation. He says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean to say such a thing? Is he saying that he's above the law? No. He's saying that he's the giver of the law. He's the creator of the law. He is saying that he is God himself. He goes on from saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and next he does something that's very interesting. It's very intentional. He walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath. He did that on purpose. He walks into the synagogue, and he sees a man with a withered hand. Extra-biblical writing tells us that this man might have been a stonemason. Now, I don't know much about stonemasonry, but I know that you likely need your hands. So this man with a withered hand has now gone from an independent person who provided for himself to a person who is completely inadequate. But the thing that we have to notice, though, is that this man with a withered hand is not in a life-threatening situation. He's not having a heart attack, he's not bleeding out, and he's not dead being needed to be raised. He just has a withered hand. But Jesus walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath and points him out. Very intentional what he's doing. 
The Pharisees see this and they say, is it lawful for a man to be healed on the Sabbath? They want to accuse him. Jesus responds with a question of his own, as he so often does. And he says, which of you who has a sheep who falls in a pit on the Sabbath, which of you would not get him out? Now he's got the Pharisees in a bit of a trap. Because if the Pharisees say, yes, we would go save it. Well, then their original question makes no sense. Why did they even ask that question? But if they say, no, of course we wouldn't. We wouldn't do that. We'd let the sheep die. Well, then they would make no sense in front of all the people that were around them. And actually, in the Talmud, there are some exceptions for a scenario just like that. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that when he asked this question. See, Jesus wasn't talking about a sheep. He was speaking to a greater point. When we look at the synoptic gospel of Mark, Jesus asks another question. Is it good to save a life or kill a life? on the Sabbath. Isn't it so interesting that at the very same time that Jesus is trying to do good, these Pharisees in their minds and hearts want to kill him on the Sabbath. Let's turn our Bibles to the Synoptic Gospel of Mark and read that account. Mark 3. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. We see that Jesus has stumped them. And then what does he do? He looks at them with anger. Could you imagine being on the receiving end of that stare? the receiving end of the stare of God with anger in his eyes. That's the kind of stare that would cut through your tough exterior right to your sinful heart. A debilitating stare. But there are those who would look at this passage and they would say, there it is. You know what? He's not who he says he is. He's angry. You're not supposed to get angry. That's a sin, right? Christians don't get angry. You're not supposed to ever get angry. Are they right? Is that a sin, to be angry? Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry, (laughs) and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's pretty clear. Be angry, yet do not sin. There's a misconception that Christians should never be angry. But the truth is, 
we as Christians, when we see evil in a society, when we see evil around us, when we even see evil in our own family, we should be angry. It should anger us when we see those things. But that anger should not be converted to vindictiveness. That anger should not be converted to bitterness. And that anger shouldn't be converted to vengeance. So the question that we must ask ourselves when we think about anger is what is a righteous anger? And what is not a righteous anger? What is the right kind of anger? And what is the wrong kind of anger? I have two sons. They're separated by five years. It's quite a, quite a gap of time. And my older son has started a new habit or hobby of collecting cards. And he's been collecting a lot of cards. And he's just had a birthday recently, and he got a whole bunch of new cards, and he's got this little binder that he puts cards in. He's very excited about it. The younger one, though, seeing this, now decided he wants to start a new hobby. What do you think that hobby is? He wants to collect cards, just like his brother. So my older son, he comes up to my wife and I, and he says, eh, yeah, eh, he's, he's collecting cards, and he, he wants, he's, doing, he's only doing it because he wants to be like me. And I, I told him, you know, this imitation is flattery, kid. You know, you, it's a good thing. But he was angry. He was actually very, very angry. And I had to tell him, you know, is that a righteous anger? Would you say that that's a righteous anger? How do we judge whether an anger is righteous or not? Hear me. Anger is judged against the truth of Scripture and not your personal preferences and sensibilities. It's not about what offends you. It's not about what makes you uncomfortable. That's not what dictates if an anger is righteous. It's not about you. It's about the truth of Scripture. We get angry when we see evil in this world, and that anger is judged against the truth of Scripture. Jesus, the word incarnate, is looking at these Pharisees, and he has anger in his eyes. Why? Because he is looking at a people who have perverted the Sabbath. And not just perverted the Sabbath, but they have placed a burden on people that they cannot bear. That they cannot bear. So Jesus heals the man. Jesus asks him to stretch forth his hand, and he heals him. You notice, he doesn't have a long conversation with him. He doesn't even touch him. He just says, stretch out your hand, and heals him. Now you would think, at this point, the Pharisees who are standing there would see such a thing. They would see this Messiah come there and say that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, stump them, and then perform the most miraculous healing that they've ever seen, you would think that they would say, we repent. That's it. You got us. We were wrong. The whole, the whole thing was wrong. Instead, what do they do? They're enraged, and they plot how to kill him. They join forces with the Herodians, 
as Mark says. Who are the Herodians? They were a sect of Jewish people who had sympathies with Herod. They were more politically aligned than they were theologically aligned. They actually had nothing in common with the Pharisees except one thing. They hated Jesus. They hated Jesus. We must understand this. Whenever we stand on the truth, and whenever we proclaim the name of Jesus, you will never receive more ire and disdain than when you do that. You can proclaim the name of Muhammad. You can proclaim the name of any one of any Hindu gods or even a secular humanist worldview. You will not get more ire and disdain than when you proclaim the name of Jesus. There's something about that name. John 15, 18 says that if they hate you, remember what? They hated me first. That's what our Lord says. So what did, what did they get wrong? What did the Pharisees get wrong? And then what, if anything, did they get right? Well, the first and most prominent and obvious thing that they got wrong was that they did not recognize Jesus for who he actually was. They wanted Jesus to be somebody else. They wanted him to cause a political upheaval. They wanted to bring Israel to prominence. Jesus to them was a charlatan. It's so interesting. A hundred years after the time of Jesus, a hundred years, the Roman emperor Hadrian was oppressing the Jewish people. And during that time, there was a small uprising, and it was led by a man. And his name was Simeon ben Kosaba the son of the star. And the reason they called him that was because he was their Messiah. He was the one that they believed would save them. They believed it so much that they minted new coins, and on the coins were his face, and it said year one, because they believed it was the start of a new era. But like so many other false messiahs like him, before him and after, he was corrupt, he was a very flawed man, he died in battle, and he was eventually forgotten. He was not the messiah that the Pharisees wanted. Jesus was not that messiah. And it is for that reason that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the next few verses for you and I to recognize who the Messiah would be. Let's read that together. Matthew 12, 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Now, before we read these verses, it's important to note that this prophecy from Isaiah is from Isaiah 42. It was written some 700 years before Jesus. 700 years. You have to really think about that. That's a very long time. And this is who the Messiah would be. Verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. Here that word servant can also be translated as the word son. Look at that verse. Behold my son, in whom I am well pleased. Does that sound familiar? Matthew 3.17, when Jesus is baptized, the father said, Behold, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Same language, 700 years before. It sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Verse 19, he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not be Simeon ben Koseba. He will not start an uprising. He will not start a violent revolution. In fact, he will be like Jesus was before Pilate. This actually sounds quite a bit like Jesus, doesn't it? A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. At that time, little children and shepherds would break reeds off of plants, and they would use them as flutes or toys. When they were finished with them, they would toss them out. They'd just throw them in the woods. A candle, when it's about to be finished, gets snuffed out. This Messiah who is to come would come for those who were cast aside. He would come for those who were dead in sin, those who were lost, those who had no hope, those like you and I. He would come for them. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Finally, verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, when I was a kid in Sunday school, my favorite Bible story was Jonah and the great fish. Because you could just envision it in your mind. It's just such a, such a powerful story. And I remember learning that Jonah was given this commission by God to go to the Ninevites and to preach the truth. But he was scared. He was afraid. And because he was afraid, he ran. Do you remember this? Turn with me to Jonah, chapter 1. Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, far from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, far from the presence of the Lord. Now we remember this story. Jonah was afraid. He ran, he got in this ship, he sailed off. What happened next? The other sailors recognized what was going on. He got tossed overboard, he started to sink, he was swallowed by a fish. Three days he was in this fish, and he prayed, and he repented. And this fish literally regurgitated him onto the shore. God gave him a second commission. He finally went to Nineveh. He preached the truth. And what happened? They all turned from their idols. They turned from their idols and they turned to God. The king even turned to God. Now you would think that Jonah would have loved this and learned his lesson, right? Let's turn to Jonah 4. Jonah 4. One to three. Now this is after they have turned to God. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? 
Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, wait a minute. I thought that he was afraid of being hurt, and that's why he ran away. That's what I thought. Why is he angry? It worked. Mission accomplished. What's he angry about? Jonah was just like the Pharisees in this. He hated the Gentiles. He hated the Gentiles. And he didn't want them to turn to God. He didn't want it at all. And when he was given the commission, instead of going, because he knew God was compassionate, he ran away. He ran away because he hated the Gentiles, just like the Pharisees did. The Pharisees looked at Jesus, and he was not the Messiah that they wanted. So my question for you today is simple. When you look at Jesus, do you want all of him or just the parts that are convenient for you? Do you truly want all of him or like the Pharisees, is it too much and he is not it? I'd like you to think about that today. As we turn back to the scripture, Matthew 12. And in his name, the last verse, 21, the Gentiles will hope. What did the Pharisees get wrong? Well, first, they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. But second, they had rules and regulations and laws and structures in their lives. But they were motivated by pride. They were motivated by self-exaltation. That's what drove them. But I need you to understand this this morning. There is nothing wrong with discipline. There is nothing wrong with structure. There is nothing wrong with order. Our God is a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14, Psalm 37. God makes it very, very clear. You and I, we are called to be concerned and have a code of ethics and rules. We are called to have family prayer every night with our families. We are called to study the word. We are called to pray. We are called to gather together as the body of Christ. But we are not driven by pride. Instead, we, as temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, we are called to do these things because we love God because we are driven to honor God through our lives. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you, God, for you are good. Lord, we pray this morning that we recognize Christ for who he actually is and not who we want him to be. Lord, we know and we understand that lords do not submit to their subjects, but subjects submit to their Lord. Father, give us the humility 
to submit to you in our lives. Help us to recognize the sin in our lives for what it is. Help us to mortify the flesh. Help us to seek to honor you through discipline, through structure in our lives, because we know that you are a God of order. And Lord, may every aspect of our lives honor and glorify you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we thank you, God, for you are good. Lord, we pray this morning that we recognize Christ for who he actually is and not who we want him to be. Lord, we know and we understand that lords do not submit to their subjects, but subjects submit to their Lord. Father, give us the humility to submit to you in our lives. Help us to recognize the sin in our lives for what it is. Help us to mortify the flesh. Help us to seek to honor you through discipline, through structure in our lives, because we know that you are a God of order. And Lord, may every aspect of our lives honor and glorify you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.